<laughs> hey, Digital Wildcatters, Chuck Yates. Here we are, big digital energy. I see nothing. It's I like see a missing man formation. It's just me and Mark. The uh, we're having a bunch of health injuries. I mean, we we've got our injured reserve, Colin, with his recurring prostate injury, and uh, Kirk's actually in. Um, I don't even know training, what you would say. Training, prep? Is <laughs> training it, is it, prep. Is it, is it your spring training for your colonoscopy? Colonoscopy tomorrow. So yeah. anyway, our best wishes to Kirk and uh, Colin on speedy recovery. Yeah, the, the, the prep is way worse than the. So the worst thing that ever happened, because I, I got my first colonoscopy when I was 32 and um, did the prep and came in the next day and the lady was like, the nurse was oh, you drank all of that? And I said, yeah, that's what the instructions said to me. And she said, oh, no one ever makes it through the whole thing. And I was like, you could have told me that. So I did. And I also had an experience of waking up. Oh, no. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, it's miserable. That's, that's another story for another uh, time. It's miserable. But anyway, before we break out in glory days and start sounding too much like old boomers, let's jump in. IEA. Put out the monthly report. What did it say, Mark? On Friday, um, so this is the the monthly report that comes out for the preceding month. They talked about at a high level what's going on with demand and reiterated that, you know, we're we're going to see a record level of global demand in 2023 at uh, almost 102 million barrels a day, which is up 2 million barrels a day globally over 2022. Now, we know that the OECD has been a bit weak and, and anemic in some of its indicators. So non-OECD is accounting for 90% of that demand growth. And not surprisingly, a big chunk of that is in the um, jet kerosene category, around 57%. The expectation for total production growth is 1.2 mil million barrels a day. The strongest players in non-OPEC, U.S. and Brazil, accounting for most of what's expected of the 1.9 million barrel a day increase out of non-OPEC, but that's offset by what OPEC Plus is doing, which uh, takes, in the IEA's estimation, another 750,000 barrels a day or so. Do we know what uh, the production growth potential? Do we know what IEA is predicting on economic growth? Is this kind of baseline growth? Does this assume a recession? Um, didn't read any particular update really past the summary, but uh, I my, my sense is, is that this is a backdrop of, you know, an expectation that we're going to see Chinese demand resurgence in the second half of 2023. And um, based on where, where they see really the current inventory levels and, and with respect to um, production growth. We're sitting slightly above or slightly below five-year norms in most categories on a global basis in terms of inventories, and that's what you got to watch just like everyone else. So <clears throat> they did have commentary, um, forget the verbatim, but, you know, really uh, negative on on the OPEC surprise cut and what that potentially means for uh, – countries that are in and consumers that are struggling with uh with inflation absent um, what this potentially does 
Because Josh Young's been pretty adamant about uh, following particularly Chinese air traffic on Twitter, and he's incredibly bullish about it. Just he's always popping up, you know, 100 more flights today, 500 more flights today. And I think his tweet this morning said there were 400 more global flights today than there were same day 2019. That's exactly right. And uh, so that that has been one of the big laggers kind of through the pandemic is global airline travel and it'd be interesting to see what the breakdown is of that of that increase um I, I suspect there's a heavy proportion of that in in a in a rebound in a resurgence in China but I didn't see a breakdown below the 400 uh, increase globally. So I mean that's a that's a big deal. I mean if we're going to be at 102 million barrels up from a hundred, that's in my whole career, it was always, it's up a million barrels a day, you know, demand. That right. was always kind of the thing. So that's two X, two X that. And we sound like a broken record every week on BDE and go, we're investing less in oil and gas every year. We're exploring for oil and gas less every year. I mean, someone's got to give at some point. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think the give and take and the tug of war in, in some cases that's going on. We'll talk a little bit about it as it relates to the G7 later on. But let's circle back to Germany. What, <laughs> what, did, what notable thing did they do over the weekend? Shut down the nukes. They're done, right? I'm out. Game over. I don't know how long the decommissioning or the shutdown process was supposed to was supposed to take, but it started on Saturday. And simultaneous with that, Eon, the largest <clears throat> German um, utility, announced that they're imposing, as of June 1st, a 45% or thereabouts uh, price increase on electricity, which brings the gross kilowatt uh, hour price up to around 49 cents in U.S. dollar terms. <clears throat> There's a little bit more detail in terms of how that, that works. Really what happens as a consumer based on an, an existing uh, regulation or law, you're capped at 40 cents on your price for 80% of what you used last year. So the increment above that 80%, the last 20% will be uncapped and will be subject to the new pricing. Um, they already pay some of the highest uh, electricity prices in the world. And the Cause Europe's about half that, right? The 49 cents. I think so. I, mean, the, I think the, Europe's call it 25 cents. The, the, the pricing increase was for North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the largest state in Germany, about 18 million people. And did we see a, a bit of an ironic twist in Europe as it relates to nuclear energy, Chuck? <laughs> what did we see? The, uh, the Finns, Finland. Actually commissioned the largest nuclear plant in Europe. I'm going to get the name wrong. That's why I'm trying to read. Okliodo? Close enough. Close enough. Okliodo 3. Uh, it supplies 14% of Finland's electricity, and it's supposed to run, what, 50 or 60 years? 60 years. It's interesting. We're going to deep dive the UK later in the show in our recurring series of, of uh, responding to the girlfriend. But um, – they're actually going to – they talk a little bit about commissioning nuclear going forward too. So this bipolar 
nature of you got the Germans shutting it all down, which is the deal Markel cut to rise a to decade power. ago, 2011, in fact. And the French passing a law in 2015 saying we're going to go from 75% nuclear down to 50% uh, nuclear, I think by 2030 or, or something to that effect, combined with the UK going to build a nuclear plant and uh, the Finns buying a nu- building a nuclear plant. So I don't know. There's Remember the first time you did BDE with me when we were in the other studio and we kind of sat side by side mm-hmm. news style? I think one of the stories you and I did was a discussion about the EU talking about do they include natural gas and nuclear, and nuclear. power in, in green energy? And so I guess some do and some don't. Yeah, it's um, as you described it a bit of an illustration of the bipolar nature of the behaviors and the discussions around uh, particularly nuclear. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, Japan's inclinations, which are a bit of a reversal on the nuclear front. They're more in the UK camp about committing to grow again and pretty significantly. So their nuclear fleet, they've, they've got a, a bit of a special security and risk concern related to Fukushima, which happened over a decade ago, but yeah, it's, um, the, the collective versus the self-interest, uh, continues to become more evident Yeah, as these discussions move forward. And we, in the short run, face an uncertain future, mostly dependent upon weather. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how much of this acceleration or this transition continues at the pace it's on. Germany's is is on a very fast track, um, as evidenced by the nuclear shutdowns. And then um, there was a, there is a prelude meeting to the full G7 summit, which is scheduled for next month in Hiroshima. Uh, this foreign ministers, G7 foreign ministers uh, conference kicked off yesterday in uh, near Sapporo, at a hot springs retreat. I don't remember the name. Probably couldn't pronounce it. I just got a visual of all the foreign ministers in a jacuzzi together. So that's probably not good, but we'll, we'll move cl- on. Pretty, for cl- pretty close. We'll, we'll move on. So, you know, the overarching proclamation that uh, was made public is this collective among the G7 to commit to an acceleration of the deployment and growth of renewables in their respective countries' economies. That amounts to 150 gigawatts of new offshore wind and a terawatt of solar power. Nuclear was left to the uh, discretion within the framework of the IAEA and safety considerations to those proponent com- uh, countries uh, in terms of building out their 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 nuclear power. And so I know we're going to talk about the UK in a little bit. Um, there was a bit of pushback, I guess, from Japan on the UK's proposal of shutting down unabated coal by 2030. And if you look at Japan's long history of of industrialization. It's the third largest economy in the world. 
it just happens to be very, very resource poor. And so the notion of really pushing hard on the power and fuel available to drive its economy, um, I think, along with, I think, a little bit more reticence than the other members have on natural gas. And we can talk about that a little bit, too. Basically, they um, had a, a, a bit of a, I don't know if it's a fence-sitting phraseology around natural gas. And it was really saying that under certain circumstances, whether driven by crises or in the case of, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, what have you, whatever the circumstances are to mitigate shortfall, development of natural gas and additions to natural gas uh, generation capacity were acceptable so long as there were no lock-ins. And I think you had a pretty recent discussion on on that topic as well, locking into long-term fundamental commitment to natural gas. So this is I don't know what circumstances mean and what, you know, what mitigating shortfalls mean if you're going to commit capital to building meaningful, uh, redundant uh, natural gas fire generation. Not sure how all that that works without a long-term vision for for infrastructure build out and development. Yeah, I mean, you love when the world gets together and they have these high-minded discussions and all, but it really seems to miss. The realities on the ground of we just don't have the storage capacity to run off run off a of renewables based infrastructure. We just don't. Right? Um, are they doing wonderful things in battery technology and figuring out? Yes, I'm sure they are. Should we throw more money at it? Yeah, we probably should because it's it's important to go figure out. But so we're gonna we're we're we continue to make this push towards an interruptible power supply without being intellectually honest and just selling, hey, two things are going to happen here. One, we're going to build the infrastructure to back it up with natural gas. And so you're going to have to pay a lot more for electricity. But when it can run on renewables, it'll run on renewables. Or, hey, we're going to run on renewables. And oh, by the way, the power is going to go out periodically. and You're just going to have to deal with that if we want to maintain costs anywhere close to where we are today. And we're not saying that. We're also not saying, oh, and by the way, China and India aren't at this table right now. So it almost doesn't matter what what uh, we do anyway, given what they're doing. Let's factor that in too. So I just, these high-minded proclamations of stuff that seem to avoid reality. Well, you know, the nasty little fact in the middle of, of an acceleration of renewables relates to critical minerals, right? And there was some policy language or proclamation language coming out of that session. I won't read it, but it's 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 not very specific on look, we're we're going to allow accelerated development of mine exploration and development, minerals exploration and mine development in our respective countries. It's, it's, it's fairly um, ambiguous and somewhat tortuous language in the, in the paragraph. If, if anybody's interested in checking out the, uh, the summary, Reuters has a good, um, a good fact box, as they call it, key excerpts from the G7 statement on energy and climate change. You can find it under their uh, business 
sub tab in, in energy. Yeah. So. I mean, cause you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, if we don't want solar panels built with slave labor, either just the panel itself being built with slave labor or mining the minerals necessary to, uh, to do this, we are going to have to do this in the United States. We are going to have to do this in G7 countries if we're, if we're serious about it. And these, you know, the, the, the plans and the trajectories, and we've talked quite a bit about mining and minerals and, and renewables. And, and just the sheer growth and capacity, productive capacity that's going to have to take place in, in key minerals, anything from a doubling a, of copper to a 20-fold increase in, in cobalt, right? So there's there's kind of on the ground dirty realities in the middle of all this and the supply and the value chain that, you know, I think the G7 pronouncements or proclamations stop short of in concert with a a a mission or an objective to accelerate renewables deployment and growth how are we going to get all the pieces and parts without having a bunch of negative knock-on effects like you just uh, cited so let's let's get out on this topic with a question rated on a scale of one to ten um we're discussing the content of the g7 proclamation at the pre-meeting and maybe even what will come out of the actual meeting, 10 is a verifiable action plan dealing with realities. One on. is held hands saying kumbaya and eight s'mores. What, your assessment of one to 10 on what the, the proclamation was? I think it'll be something in the low single digits. I'll give it a two and a half. Yeah. I was going to say two or a three. I was actually going to go below one, but uh, <laughs> I, I think these these realities, um, the practical and technical realities that crop up in the middle of these enthusiastic proclamations, uh, that and the fact that you know we've we've seen growing pushback when these gatherings happen and and prescriptions are made for the entire world by the G seven, for example, that. The, the countries in the South, as they call it, who certainly need help with transitioning uh, their energy infrastructure and some need help with actually fundamentally accessing energy, right? Um, there's a lot of voices that aren't at the table. So this politically gets very, very complex very quickly. Yeah. All righty. Our main man, Kevin O'Leary, refinery, <laughs> Shark Tank star. I forget what he said. Was it fourteen or fifteen billion dollars? He was just going to go build one. I didn't hear details though. Does he actually Four, have fourteen billion? But it might round up to fifteen or twenty-five. <laughs> Does he actually have any money to do this, or was this just no, a publicity was, stunt? I look. I think it was. Uh, you know, kind of look over here now <laughs> after, <laughs> after the the uh, FTX SBF apology tour. <laughs> The concept is he wants to lead with willing states and capital partners the build out of a $14 billion greenfield refinery in the U.S., which hasn't been done in well over 40 years. Um, in his somewhat hyperbolic language around energy independence, I looked for some current data on what greenfield 
replacement costs might be, and I, you know, somewhere between twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars a barrel. So, fourteen billion, assuming that's the right number all in, would get you about a five hundred thousand barrel a day refinery, which you know is at the higher end of the scale. Question is, where is that located? What what kind of crude supply options are we looking at? What's the complexity? You know, how's how does the market change between now and then? And when I first saw that headline, I wanted to tweet back, tell me you don't know anything about crude <laughs> product markets without telling me you don't know anything about crude and product markets. So we'll see where this goes, but I do think it was a bit of a kind of a grandstanding publicity stunt. Yeah, I think we talked about this, I think, three weeks ago on BDE. We're adding 4 million barrels a day, I think, worldwide. The issue is how much of that practically are we adding? Because when you talk utilization in the United States, you're talking 95% of the time. When you're talking utilization in Mexico, you're talking 30% of the time. Uh, I think Southeast Asia, it's 50 60% of the time. And so whether we get all 4 million barrels a day or not, it, it is interesting that it's become such a problem uh, refining capacity as well as the margins. I mean, they've just been making a killing that the ultimate retail investor on the planet is uh, as flagged it as a theme. So right. this is the, when when I worked for Stevens, John Jacoby, the old guy that uh, managed all the Stevens family money used to always say, anytime a company appears on the cover of Fortune or Forbes, you short it. So maybe I guess we're shorting uh, refining now. So Probably a good rule of thumb. Um, That's a kudos to him for bringing it up, though. I want to circle back to one thing on the renewable commitments, the one terawatt of solar. Assuming that it's seven acres per megawatt, that's about 11,000 square miles, which is 4% of the land area of Texas, or six plus Harris counties. So, you know, terawatt takes up a lot of space. So we're going to cover Dallas. There's <laughs> there's some parts of East Texas I'm not real thrilled with. We'll cover that. Maybe Lubbock. Take Lubbock out. I mean, what's what's there? And then there's some area between kind of West Texas and maybe we got to leave Marfa open in the, the state <laughs> park down there. It's really nice, but yeah, there we go. We'll cover it up. That's wild. That's amazing. And of course, where they have that space is nowhere near population centers, right? So you right. got to build big old power lines and you lose to friction. And so anyway, all right. In our uh, continued quest to deep dive Europe, and just to refresh the audience, the British girlfriend has chided us for calling Europe a uniblock, if you will, or not differentiating between various members of Europe, because Europe is 20 to 30 different countries, depending on what you look at vis-a-vis -vis Europe. And so what we've done the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue to do, is pick a country in Europe, we deep dive that country, talk about their energy policies, just to give some context around it. So today, we go to the island. And here are some interesting facts, Mark, to, to, to start off with. Did you know that all the swans on the River Thames belong to the crown? I do now. You do now. So King Charles has that to look forward to. Second fact. 
More languages are spoken in London than any other city on the planet. They have over 300 languages spoken there on a daily basis. And this is a great one. Fact three, it is illegal to die in the House of Commons because there's another law that says if you die while in the House of Commons, you're entitled to a state funeral. So instead (laughs) of just removing that law, they added another law. Oh, by the way, you can't die here. So we've got that. But um, okay, so well, let's uh, let's level set even more. The UK is the sixth largest economy in per capita, no, in in GDP terms, and twenty fourth in per capita. Okay, that's nom- nominal GDP. Yeah, so and lower in terms of what they call uh, purchasing power parity, which is adjusted to the dollar, and not part of the EU or on the way out. Uh, so. Arguably part of Europe, only in terms of geography. Is that fair? Yeah, and and this is, I think, fundamentally what um, the girlfriend was pointing out is that, and as we've seen with all the disparate takes on energy and responses to a crisis and what policies and plans European, the various European countries we've talked about and some more that we will talk about, they're all very different. Yeah. In in pretty significant ways in certain areas. Because, I mean, the first two countries we've done, Germany, industrial economy, tons of coal they don't use, really reliant on natural gas. Then we deep dive France last week, 75% of their powers from nuclear service, service. economy. So, so very different. So just to run through kind of some history and Mark, what's the difference between England, Great Britain, and the United Kingdom. Great Britain is England, Scotland, and Wales. The United Kingdom adds Northern Ireland. And England being the uh, subset of one of the... Correct. So, perfect. There so, you so you're doing an English... We're, we're, I think we're the whole island, but but we'll see. The um, So when you look back early 20th century... As with most places, 90% of the energy usage was coal. They had tons of coal. They actually exported coal back in the day. 1960s, they discover oil and gas in the North Sea. So you see oil and natural gas becoming a larger share of the energy to where you're in the late 20th century. About 10% of their energy is coal, 40% is oil, 25% is natural gas. They invested a little bit in nuclear. They did open the first nuclear reactor, the Queen did in 1956. They had a little bit, so 5%, maybe 10% of the power of the energy usage is, is nuclear. And at that point in the late 20th century, they're at 15% renewable. Historically, they'd always been 5% because of some hydro. Um, today, they're basically phasing out coal. They're almost done with that. oil, 35% natural gas, 10% nuclear, and they're up to 35% of renewable, and it's been the wind and and solar build. So that's kind of one thing. Let me throw another couple of just random facts at you, and then I'll let you opine. uh, The island, particularly Great Britain, has been pretty good, and and when I say good, about demand side strategies. So in fairness to them, something we don't do in the United States, we never 
discourage demand in any way, shape, or form, and then we bitch when the products use. They've got all sorts of energy efficiency standards, building standards. They've got smart meters. They have energy suppliers that have mandates they put on. Transportation, they've got, in 2003, they put in a congestion charge. So uh, they've got ultra low emission zone where you get fined if you go into London. They have car-free days in London. Uh, They've set up cycling, pedestrian infrastructure. They've obviously got their mass transit. So they have done stuff on the demand side. That being said, they still import on any given year five to six percent of their electricity from their neighbors, Netherlands and, and France, which I found pretty interesting. So that's kind of uh, that's kind of the island in a nutshell. What say you, Mark? I think we're seeing, at least with respect to the German response and the British plans, some similarities in that. A lot of it is about behavior and demand modification and, and mitigation. Uh, the U.S. is sticks out like a sore thumb. We've never been very good at changing behaviors. If you look at the history of cafe standards and what that's actually turned out to be, and and the types of vehicles we drive, and the notion that we're going to um, reduce electricity demand or take on austerity austerity measures. Uh, to support a um, a transition to decarbonized sources of electricity, I don't think in the populace has taken hold. We'll see how it 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 plays out in Europe, and I think uh, the UK is going to be a particularly interesting test case because of you know the 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 portion that they do import depends upon the policies related to generation in those countries that provide that that exported power to the UK. And I will say, I think they have a better culture, if you will, for possibly reducing demand. I mean, they live in smaller houses than when we do. They do have a more austere culture than we do. They, you know, they don't go out and buy something brand new every 20 minutes. They save, they repair. Um, I mean, to their credit, Unlike the French, I mean, they stood up to the Germans and got bombed into oblivion. And Paris is a much better looking city than a lot of parts of England because they were uh, they were willing to uh, to fight back. So they have more of the culture to be able to do it. And, you know, what what did Churchill need most from Roosevelt? What was that? Oil. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. As I always say, the East Texas oil fields won World War Two. Um, but anyway, so I do think they have a chance. The one thing that doing this deep dive, because I used to always say I was the greatest private equity guy on the person anywhere Southwest Airlines flies. So I've never <laughs> been a Europe guy. I've never I, I've never studied it much. But doing these these deep dives, I think what's starting to emerge for me as a picture, and as we continue to look at the other countries, we'll see if this really plays out. Is you've got the island basically importing five to six percent of its electricity from its neighbors, you know, Netherlands and and France. France exports 60 terawatt hours a year to its neighbors. And if you think about that, uh, I believe this is a Great Britain number. Great Britain uses about 300 terawatt hours a year. So, I mean, 
France exports about 20% of what Great Britain uses in a, in a year. To be, yeah. to be clear, that's total France export, not, total, not just to, yeah, not just yeah, to Great to Britain. To be clear, it's just, I was just giving that as, as sure to say that's a shitload. Yeah. Right. To try to give a, uh, so this is interesting though, you know, in 2015, like we discussed last week, the energy transition law in France said, Hey, we're no longer going to be 75% nuclear. We're going down to 50% nuclear. And they're basically going to replace that with renewables. France is almost the battery, if you will, for the geographic region that is Europe, because they've got what am I trying to say? Power that's dispatchable. Dispatchable. Thank you. Dispatchable power. They're a surplus generator. They're a surplus generator. And Why? If, and it because of the nuclear. Mm-hmm. And to the extent we're all going to go to uh, to wind and solar, Europe better hope that wind blows in different spots all across Europe because they're either going to have to, as we were talking about earlier, they're either going to have to build natural gas back up for all of it. And that's really expensive. Or they're just going to have times when the power goes out. Well, I, I, I think we saw a good test case and, and fortunately a mild weather scenario this past winter, but what did Germany spend 800, 800 billion euros on emergency LNG and coal yeah. to fill the gap? And it wasn't that big a gap right? because of the weather. I mean, this, all, this all ultimately will be a test case of uh, political resilience when push comes to shove in these pinch points where you know people living the reality day to day i can tell you extended i lived in pakistan for a while and sitting in an office where you're pretty much got a 3 month blackout due to utility maintenance is is no fun you just learn to live with it but it wasn't an easy adaptation to make so it's going to be interesting to see kind of the populist response when things get tight or there's uh, pinch points as a result of this in the short and the medium term uh, transition. The UK is going to be a really interesting, really interesting case, particularly with the, um, you know, the uh, the dependency on some of the, the, the imports that you just described. Well, and two other kind of interesting points I went on and on about how they've actually taken actions on the demand side. When prices spiked last year, what did they do? The government subsidized. Right. So there there was some response to that. The 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 other thing I've I find interesting is their North Sea production, and this is UK's, peaked in 1995 and it's down 75% since then. All of North Sea is down. Um, kind of since that time. But I think the other countries that produce from the North Sea haven't seen a 75% decline in production. And my scrolling on Google, working with chat GPT and trolling on Twitter, the answer seems to be that's been UK driven tax policy that's, that's led to a lot of it. Sure, this is a more mature basin. But at the end of the day, you've got uh, you've got tax policy really it's, driving the decline. It's pretty geologically complex, and it's harsh environment for sure. I don't know if you remember there was a a public company 
around for a while endeavor, the public endeavor that was um, I don't know how many years they were around, but it was it was built upon this mega merge of the three D seismic data sets right, in yeah. the North Sea. And the thing I recall about that company is had the worst ever ticker, which was END. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah, no, speaking to the environment, I had Joe Meenan on the uh, podcast that survived Piper Alpha, the uh, explosion on that offshore by jumping 150 feet into the North Sea, which was just mm. a harrowing tale. So, yeah, I, I think it's just the relative uh, capital allocation attractiveness and the maturity of the basin. And the and a lot of that has to do with uh, with UK tax policy. Yeah, we've reported on that in the past, and it was horrific. I forget what the exact metrics were, but I think EMP and for BP out of the North Sea or something accounted for what ten percent of their net income and forty percent of their tax bill or something yeah. ridiculous like that. So anyway, that would be England. Hopefully, I'm not in too much trouble. So what's next? I guess it'll be a surprise. It'll be a surprise. It seems like that's our Sunday night texting. <laughs> Where should we go next? Um, do you have a finger of the week? I don't. I don't think I have a finger of the week either. It was kind of a pleasant week. Got to eat at Uchi this weekend, which was always nice. So I don't think I'm bitter about anything. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll work on a finger of the week. We'll get, we'll get the old curmudgeons Kirk and uh, Colin back soon enough. They seem to be way more into finger of the week. All righty, digital outcatters. If you like this week's podcast, please subscribe. Please tell a friend and thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week, assuming we can get other members off the IR. Peace.